Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast we have a message entitled Enemy Love. We're looking at a particularly challenging verse from the Sermon on the Mount. I think you'll find here in this passage that there's more to it than meets the eye when we approach it in the cultural context of that day. We've got all sorts of things coming up. Next week, we will be doing our first Ash Wednesday service, and we're going to be releasing uh, video devotionals every day, uh, Monday through Friday, during the seasons of Lent. So stay in touch with that at northshorevineyard.org. But for now, let's head to the talk. Thanks for listening. passage from the lectionary today is Matthew 5, verse 38 through 48. This is um, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, just to give you a little context. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand it over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your enemy, I mean, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to start by doing a little slight recap of, of the message last week. Uh, I said that in, in the history lesson portion of the message, uh, which if you didn't listen to it, go check out the podcast because we had quite a history lesson here. Um, but there were three main ways that religious people in first century uh, Jerusalem and Judea re- understood their relationship to the political systems of their day, which was the Roman Empire that was occupying them. So just imagine... You know, America's been around 230 years. Uh, the, the Jewish people had been basically occupied by one empire or another for about 500 years. So imagine how that would just kind of build up some resentment. And you would just not be real happy with these pagan people who are trying to dominate you and tax you heavily and threaten you with crucifixion and things like that. So... There were three main ways that people dealt with this and understood their relationship. The Sadducees, which was the way of compromise. So the Sadducees were the upper crust of of Jewish society, and their strategy was, hey, this is a bad situation. Let's just try to do our best to 
get jobs with the Romans and be nice to them. And so it was the way of compromise. The other main group was the zealots. This included the Pharisees. And these guys actually wanted to violently overthrow the government. The, you know, they were, they were ready for a revolt. And then the final group was the Essenes. If you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, it's thanks to the Essenes. They uh, formed this alternative uh, commune out in the desert. And their whole philosophy was we just need to escape all this, circle the wagons, hang on until God comes back and rescues us. But it is into those three mindsets that Jesus delivers the passage that we talked about last week. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You're the salt that brings out the God flavors in the world around us. You're the light that brings out the God colors. Jesus was, in essence, saying, I'm not calling you as my followers to compromise with the government, and I'm not calling you to a violent revolution, and I'm not calling you into escapism. I'm calling you to be in the midst of this situation, but to be in it like salt and light. It's a very different way. And so I said, well, how do we, how do we, how can we be salt and light? Well, it's following the Sermon on the Mount. And so we kind of went over the Beatitudes last week. And now we come to a, 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 an issue here where Jesus is really dealing with the politics of his day, the, the political situation. And he's giving them some very practical things. Now, I have to tell you, um, This is a, a very problematic passage. Uh, it's, I, I think Christians, we, I mean, some of these things have become phrases in our world, like go the second mile, turn the other cheek. People who don't even go to church are familiar with certain aspects of this. But I can tell you, the first time I taught on this passage was back when I was in Kenner, and we were going through the book of Matthew. And I realized in studying for this passage, I'd been in church for years and never heard one pastor speak on this passage. And as a pastor myself, I can tell you, I totally get that. <laughs> because it's weird. I mean, does it occur to you when you're listening to these, these words here that I, I think one of my biggest objections is like, well, if somebody's being bad to you and you just say, hey, be bad more to me, <laughs> It kind of seems like you're encouraging them, like you're, you're enabling them. Or it, it seems like it's bad news for victims. It, it almost seems like this, this passage can be taken in a way that further victimized people who are already victimized. You know, somebody who's in a, in a, a relationship where they're getting abused. And they're, oh, well, you know, I just read this thing from Jesus. I just need to love my enemy and just let him hit me. That, that is the way some people take this. It's possible to read this in a certain way that actually encourages evil and actually further victimizes victims. But I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here at all. And, and to understand this, we need to understand that, that really this thing about turning the other cheek, offering your cloak... Uh, going the second mile, Jesus was speaking to actual situations that these people would experience in their culture. So Jesus wasn't just 
pulling stuff out of the air. This was actually situations that if you were a Jewish person in the first century living under Roman occupation, you would actually, uh, it, was, it was quite common to face situations like this. So the first examples that he gives is, if anybody slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. Zach, can you come up here for a second? I need to demonstrate something. <laughs> for real. <laughs> <laughs> So, say I'm a Roman official and, and, and Zach's doing some labor for me and I'm like, oh, these bricks, man, you're, you're, you're dropping these bricks. And I'd go like this and to slap him on his right cheek, I actually have to backhand him, right? I'm not really going to do that, thankfully, right? Um, the backhanded slap... It was a way, uh, in that culture at that time, I mean, still today, hello, it was a way of demeaning the other person, saying you're nothing, you're less than human, you're a slave. They look down on you as a way of, of, of expressing your authority. So if I slap Zach like that, and Zach then turns his other cheek to me, what this is actually saying is, you can slap me again, but you're not slapping me as an inferior, you're slapping me as an equal. Okay, you can sit down. No slaps. <laughs> Zach was like, don't make me do this. Um. <laughs> See, back in the Old Testament, uh, Jesus starts off this passage by saying, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Where did they hear that said? They heard it from the Bible. Uh, back in Levit Leviticus, God commanded them, if somebody pokes your eye out, go poke their eye out. If somebody uh, knocks your tooth out, you knock their tooth out. It's called the law of retaliation. And the law of retaliation kind of really helps civilizations, civilizations get started. Because before the law of retaliation, it was kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoy. You accidentally kill my dog, well, I'm going to kill your daughter. And then it's like, well, you kill my daughter, I'm going to kill your wife. And you kill my wife, I'm rounding up a bunch of guys, we're going to go burn your house down. And you can see, I mean, even through history, I mean, actually, the Hatfields and McCoys, you can see that there are situations like this that happen that go on for generations, and they started with something relatively small. So the law of retaliation was to, to bring uh, uh, some checks and balances in, like the, the punishment fits the crime. And that was a huge thing for civilization because now there's some, some boundaries to how far you can retaliate. And that was good. But as Jesus said last week, you know, uh, unless your, your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you're, you're, you're not really entering into the kingdom. So in this, when he says, uh, if somebody slaps you on, back, backhands you on your right cheek, you turn to him the other cheek. This isn't encouraging further victimization, and it is not running away in fear. It's a third way. You know, people who study the human mind uh, say that, that there's this part of our brain, and kind of down in our brain stem, you know, the lowest portion of our brain that we share with lizards. They call it the lizard brain. Uh, anybody ever have a pet lizard or pet snake? Yeah. <laughs> we, had a, we had a bearded dragon for a couple of years, my, my son Ezra, and you could throw anything in there. Like, he just got the bearded dragon. It's, it was about this big. It's a long, it was a big old lizard. It's scary. And... Uh, 
Ezra's outside one day and he catches a little baby lizard. He's like, I'm going to bring him a friend. <laughs> and he drops it in there and it's like, gone. <laughs> and having this bearded dragon, all of a sudden it made like catching roaches or spiders in the house. It was like the gladiator games. It's like, let's see who shall survive the gauntlet. And so we throw a wolf spider in there, and it's like, they stick out a tongue and grab it. It's it's cool to watch uh, from afar. Um, Throw crickets in there, throw roaches in there. Nothing could survive except for a frog one time. A frog made it out. We only had one guy make it out of the the gladiator games. But the thing I noticed with with our our bearded dragon named Anakin um, (laughs) is there's no reflection going on. There's no, like... I mean, mammals even, like a dog, you know, they'll, they'll look at their prey and think, is this worth it? Is this something I want to eat? A lizard, they look at that, and it's just a switch. It's time for dinner. I could throw something poisonous in there, and he'd eat it because there's no reflection going on whatsoever. It's fight or flight. And every one of, of, of us has that part of our brain. Thank God for it. It saved your life on numerous occasions. The problem is we can live in a state of fear and anger. And we can live in that reality that was meant to actually just save our lives in emergencies. We can actually develop a type of existence where we're always in a perpetual state of fear or anger at other people. And so when it comes to enemies, we either hit them back or we run away. And Jesus says, no, there's a better way to do this that doesn't victimize the victim and it doesn't excuse what the other person's doing. Turn the other cheek. Then he goes on to say, uh, suppose that someone... Oh, wait, I wanted to say one other thing here real quick. I'm I'm getting off notes here. In their book, Resident Aliens, uh, Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon said this, uh, cheek turning is not advocated as what works, but because it is the way that God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and selfish. Thank God, right? This is not a strategy for getting what we want, but only the only manner of life available now that in Jesus we have seen what God wants. We seek reconciliation with the neighbor, not because we feel so much better afterwards, but because reconciliation is what God is doing in the world through Christ. So in a situation where you turn the other cheek, this isn't just a strategy for us. This is kind of passive-aggressive way to get what we want. No, this is we're actually revealing God in that moment. Suppose you are in a law court where a powerful enemy is suing you, perhaps for a non-payment of some huge debt and wants the very shirt off your back. This was a common type of thing for Jesus' listeners who were mainly, you know, poor people who were following this itinerant rabbi around. You can't win, but you can show him what he's really doing. Give him your cloak as well. And in a world where people only wore those two garments, you will shame him with your impoverished nakedness. This is what the rich, the powerful, and the careless are doing. They are reducing the poor to a state of shame. So Jesus says, here's another hypothetical situation. One of these uh, 
well-off people who's oppressing you wants to, to take one of your two items of clothes, how about right there in court, you just strip naked and let him see you <laughs> in your impoverished nature. You can do this to me, but I want you to see. Finally, forced labor. Jesus says if somebody asks you to, to go one mile, go two miles. What is Jesus talking about here? It's not a random uh, situation again. This is actually the law in the first century in that part of the world was a Roman official could just show up and ask you to, do, uh, to, to carry their stuff a mile without consulting you at all. You know, you could be having a birthday party for your son. You could be in the middle of a project, and a Roman official comes up to you and says, Hey, uh, Josh, can you just uh, carry this stuff down the road for me for a mile? And Josh would have to stop what he's doing, because I'm about to ruin. Um, and, and I don't know where that came from. And, and carry his stuff a mile down the road. Now, the, the, the thing about the, uh, the Roman law was that it limited it to one mile. So a Roman soldier couldn't say, ah, take it two miles. What, what Jesus is saying, when you get the opportunity, you hate these Roman people. They're your enemies, and they're messing your life up, just coming in at random times and asking you to go a mile. How about you take it two miles? Because if you go two miles, you reveal something of God. Take this opportunity, not just from your self-preservation or your disgust of the empire or whatever you don't approve of. Don't act in that way. See this as an opportunity to reveal God. I saw a, a wonderful movie a few years ago called uh, To End All Wars, and it was a true story about U.S. prisoners of Japan in, uh, who were in a prison camp, and it was really bad. These guys were beaten on a regular basis. They were tortured. They were malnourished, just awful, waterboarded, just Horrible situation, and most of these guys, when they first showed up at this camp, they're fighting the J Japanese. They're looking at any way they could subvert things and, and screw up the Japanese plans. And if they weren't looking for ways to do that, they were looking for a way to escape. But there was one guy in their platoon who was a devout follower of Jesus. And this guy... He just seemed to be in a whole different zone than these other guys. And they, they made fun of him. They didn't understand him. They're like, you're, you're, you're pretty foolish. But over months of being in there, they began to see this guy seems to have a secret to happiness in life that none of us have. His very life there in that horrible prison situation reflected Jesus and actually got these other Soldiers, It made an impact to them to the point where they decided they wanted to start following the ways of Jesus with him. And so the Japanese had this one project that they wanted to get done. They wanted a bridge built over the Kwai River. And these soldiers, taking the, the advice of Jesus here to go the second mile... They decided that when they were going to work on this bridge, they weren't going to work on it and, and subtly put, you know, things to sabotage it, you know, make the bridge fall apart at a key time. They weren't going to try to subvert. They weren't going to try while they're out there working on the line to figure out a, a, a way to escape. They said, we're going to do this as if we were working for our families and we were paying our mortgages instead of getting less than a handful of rice a day. We're going to do this like we're getting bonuses. We're going to do this unto the Lord. 
And these soldiers actually built the bridge quicker than, than even the Japanese expected. And guess what it did to the Japanese people who were imprisoning them? It began to break through their hearts. They began to experience God. They began to turn towards Jesus. See, this is what Jesus is getting at. And, and, and other people throughout history, whether Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi, uh, Gandhi was actually inspired by Jesus, by the way. He was a big fan of Jesus, not so much of Christians. But in all these situations, what we see is there is the fight, or there's the fight, the, the fight or the flight. But Jesus invites us into a different way of understanding that we wouldn't try to go fight or flight, but we would look for a creative way forward that is not violence, but is, is us standing in who we are called to be, not backing down, but not cowering away. The last aspect that Jesus says here, oh, I, I, I love this quote, speaking of Martin Luther King Jr. He says, along... The way of life, someone must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate. And this can be done only by projecting the ethic of love into the center of our lives. When I look around at the world today, I mean, folks, they got good reasons for hating each other. But most people are in fight or flight mode. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, everybody pointing fingers at each other, it's fight or flight. Somebody has to, to, to break the cycle because retribution back and forth, it gets us nowhere. It takes the whole world down. We get to be the people, though, who get to seek a different way forward. Jesus finally closes with saying, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to reign on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagan people do that? It, it's easy. Any idiot can love people who are just like him, right? It's easy to love people who go to the same Starbucks as us and go to the same uh, store to buy their groceries and they have the same political beliefs and they have the same place in society and we see everything just the right way. We got the same taste in music and all that stuff. It's easy to like those kind of people. Jesus said, that don't get you any credit, <laughs> Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. This little pray for people who persecute you, this is, uh, I think, one of the most helpful things in this passage. Because I don't really think we can get into a place where we can actually bless those who are our enemies face-to-face -face unless it starts in a place of reflection and dealing with stuff in our own hearts. I don't think we can naturally muster up the stuff in our own selfish beings to actually 
think of turning the other cheek or going the second mile when we are presented with enemies in our life. Apart from learning how to encounter the Holy Spirit within. We, we did a little exercise at our uh, spiritual location exercise at our relationship class on Tuesday night. And I was telling Dina the next day after doing that, I've been doing these little spiritual location things. I do them a few times a year, but I've, I've over the last several years, I've been trying to, to be more reflective and not like a lizard, <laughs> but to, to learn to sit down and interrogate my own beliefs, to ask myself, why am I... Why am I so drawn to this conclusion? And we did this little exercise the other night. It's just uh, basically trying to figure out where you are physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally. And I told Dina the next day, I said, you know, the interesting thing is I'm looking at my life right now, and there are situations that I am facing that are very similar to situations I was facing five years ago. (laughs) And five years ago... Those situations had me tied up in knots. I was wound up. I was anxious. And, I'm, and here I am all these years later after learning how to dial down and reflect and be quiet and be still and know that, that God is here. It's actually formed me to where I'm living in a new normal that's not dominated by lizard brain thinking anymore. I'm still capable of it. And thank God I still got a little lizard brain in me, or a lot of lizard brain, because, you know, that might save my life out on the roads of New Orleans. (laughs) But I'm finding that I'm not living in that place that is controlled by fear or anger. I've actually been formed differently. And I think that this is as controversial as these statements are of Jesus. Jesus is actually trying to get us into a qualitatively different kind of existence. That's not based on fear. Not based on scarcity. Not built on anxiety. Not built on anger and need for revenge and retribution. But on love. And on trust. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just about how to behave. It's about discovering the living God and the loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves into the world that needs it so badly. And while our default reaction to enemies is naturally fight or flight, Jesus invites us into a way of living that seeks a different path altogether. This will require us to be people who are self-reflective, who daily grow in our understanding of God's love for us, and who are shaped and formed by that love so that when we face an enemy, we can be open to and respond to the ways that God, that reveal God to this world. You know, we're coming up on the seasonal Lent. I don't know, we've got another week or so. We are going to have our first ever Ash Wednesday service here. And I'm really excited about Lent because we're... I'm developing a series of, of, of daily little, little video devotionals that um, 
kind of will help us stay mindful of God and what God's doing in our hearts throughout that season. I think even with these tie groups that we're offering, you know, learning to do our journey together. And I'm, I'm just hoping that over these next six weeks that as we live in a world that is not, not reflective at all, as we are, are around people who are just doing knee-jerk reactions to everything, as we live in a world that's always trying to push our buttons, that we could be a different type of people that are waiting on the Holy Spirit, that are trying to be open to what God is doing. And I think that that is the real point of what Jesus is getting at here. He closes with one little, one last aspect. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. No pressure. <laughs> be perfect. That's all God wants from you. Just be perfect. Okay. I can understand even the way that this this passage ends. Like, there's nothing easy about this passage in our minds on a first look. But read in context, what God is, what Jesus is actually saying is, it's not be perfect the way we think. We think of perfection as like, you know, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, doing something uh, perfect along the rules. What Jesus is saying here is in the same way that your heavenly Father is loving to the good and the bad, you be that way. the same way that God is, you live into that truth. Because guess what? God loved you when you didn't deserve it. I think one of the biggest things in my life that has helped me along this path, besides learning reflection and contemplation, is learning how much God loves me and believing it. And I think to the extent that we can open our hearts and know that God loves us as much today, as much on our best day as he does on our worst day, as we open our hearts to that reality and believe it, we can find ourselves extending grace and love to other people who may not deserve it, who may get on our nerves, or who may even oppose us. Why don't you all stand? Jesus, we, we just ask for your grace concerning these teachings, God. Uh, we just confess this morning that we, we don't want to live in fear, God, and we don't want to live in bitterness and resentment and anger, God. We want to seek your path forward, God, a path that reveals who you are. So, Lord, I just pray for everybody in here in the days to come, God, that you would be whispering to us, Holy Spirit, throughout our days, how to take a different road when we face resistance. Lord, instead of lashing back or running away, God, that, that we could settle down, get quiet, pay attention to your Holy Spirit, and that you would lead us in your path, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen.